And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, July 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, higher interest rates have dampened mergers and acquisitions in the defense market. Plus, a review of federal efforts to improve citizen experience and reduce administrative burden. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency stands more and more at the center of cyber defense operations for the entire government. CISA officials say the evolution of their Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, CDM, has really helped defend agency networks from recent hacking attempts. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with CISA's Associate Director for Capacity Building, Michael Duffy. We started a little over a decade ago focused primarily on advancing and automating a lot of the ways that chief information officers would manage IT assets and conduct things like ATOs, authority to operate, monitor the state of assets on networks. It was a paradigm shift to have those kind of conversations as a program at the time, but certainly not operationally focused. And at the time, the operational use case for CDM had been primarily uh, limited to how agencies could provide cybersecurity information at some summary level to CISA to kind of showcase and demonstrate progress through metrics. The recent evolution of the program and increased operational relevance, and that's what we can talk about today uh, with recent events, was shaped, and I'd put it down to, to three or four things, is the first increasingly concerning threat environment and several major cyber events over the years that have led us to what evolved into more expansive authorities, an increased demand from agencies for these centralized services. And that on top of everything is kind of that resounding call post a few of these major incidents in in recent years to really strengthen the way the government is protecting its data on behalf of the American people, really kind of doubling down on our efforts to transform more operationally and in a more kind of protected minded way. So as part of that, With the progress that we've been seeing, and you've seen some of the headlines with the metrics, the progress we've seen at the agency level to implement key functions uh, in support of CDM, as well as improvements that we've been seeing in the the technology side of things, coupled with the administration's cyber executive order, that has really helped us drive these substantial changes to the way that we're increasing the operational visibility that CISA is gaining from the CDM program through the CDM dashboards and refining the way that we're working across agencies uh, to shape this new operational model. The way that we've been seeing it in CISA is the path to timely federal enterprise cybersecurity operations and truly making impactful risk management decisions is increasingly running through CDM. And that's been a pretty stark change in the way that we've seen CDM a decade ago to now. So all of this cybersecurity operational work for the federal government is more and more running through the CDM program, asking more of what the program can offer when it comes to operational visibility. And this not only as we we settle into this, this new era, it delivers on the program's founding vision for fixing the worst problems first and providing that shared visibility and getting that consistency and communications across agencies. But 
We take it a step further by advancing the operational response, incident response aspects of the program and getting down to the host level so that we can truly say, you know, living up to America's cyber defense agency, we're more than a collection point for cyber information, but we've seen that it is a shift in the way that we're thinking of the CDM program as a central enterprise-wide cyber backbone to understand, manage, and reduce cyber risks, which ultimately comes down to what and why we are, are continuing to evolve this program to give us that opportunity to drive forward the mission and, and communicate that with the broader ecosystem. There's a lot of things to dig into here in this evolution, but one thing I did want to ask about right away was getting agency buy-in. How has that evolved? How have you gotten agencies to get down to this more granular operational level of CDM so you can have this visibility across all of these agencies? I think that is a great question. It's it's something that the CDM program and and, and all of us at CISA take very seriously. Of you know, we have I mentioned the evolving threat environment, the expanding authorities that CISA uh, has received. It it can be easy to say, well, we have the authority, we have the mandate, we just have to move forward. Uh, and one thing that is very clear for the way that CISA has, from day one, the way we've thought about our relationship, our partnership with other federal agencies, is really building that trust from the CIO and the CISO level down to the security operators uh, to really showcase the value that we're providing through CDM. I think in the early days, it could be challenging for an agency to see individual capabilities turning into this overarching vision of the way that we could operationalize the program. The value to a security operations center or a CISO is that the advancements that we're seeing in CDM, you know, we are poised to, to ensure that uh, first responders, cybersecurity first responders no longer need to rely on emails and conference calls as their first tool of choice when it comes to responding to incidents and coordinating. But we're actually, through CDM, ushering in a new era where the government and interagency partners um, have cyber situational awareness, which is you know just only a few clicks away. And, and that's through that CDM dashboard hierarchy. That is the way that we're providing value both at the agency level as well as understanding what agency peers might be seeing. And we can share that information back and forth. Another thing that, that probably doesn't get discussed enough when it comes to CDM is really the way that we've been able to evolve the business side of the program to make sure that we're speaking in a way that resonates to chief information officers and, and, and budget officers within an agency that are thinking about, well, how do we, how do we make investments in cybersecurity to advance this mission? How, how can we leverage shared services or how can we leverage something that CISA might provide us for uh, some period of time before we take on the costs? And in the early days of CDM, we made every attempt to simplify a very complex endeavor uh, providing specific cybersecurity services and solutions in an architecture, and then applying that to small groups of agencies. And that was to, to avoid having 101 uh, different bespoke solutions for every agency. And what we found at the time was what we gained in some efficiency, we actually lost in 
uptake and sustainment. Those two things are extremely important for us. We really need to make sure that agency leadership at every level from strategic to programmatic to operational is fully bought in to what the value proposition is and what they're getting from CDM and what they can provide to CISA through ease of use and efficiency through the CDM program, through the dashboard, the hierarchy, the solution itself. Um, that's really important for us. And, and recently, we found a lot of success in transitioning to those operational use cases through the deployment of endpoint uh, detection and response capabilities. And instead of saying, we have one solution or three solutions, and we'll provide those through a standard architecture and agencies will basically have, have that capability happen to them. We've changed the model quite a bit and we've modernized it so that this is part of an ongoing discussion with agencies to understand uh, basic requirements of what we would be looking for from these types of capabilities, offering agencies a way to gain access to them at no cost uh, through funding that we have centrally, and then working with agencies to integrate and leverage our own contract vehicles to fill specific gaps. So what we're doing now is finding ways that we can resolve longstanding agency technology challenges, something that they may not have been able to um, select or procure or integrate themselves, and finding ways that we can be more of a partner in that acquisition, that integration, and that operationalization. And that has really changed the way that we're coordinating to make sure that this is sustained. This isn't something that kind of, there is a cliff that we, uh, we provide funding and then it stops. This is something that we as CISA are thinking is so critical to this mission that we need to sustain this. And the, the best way to sustain it is to make sure that we're all swimming in the same direction, that we are all on the same team, making sure that we're making decisions as CISA and the agency together. I noticed the incorporation of EDR capabilities into CDM is a relatively recent development. Can you talk about how that happened and maybe why those you know legacy, I guess you could call them CDM capabilities, married up well with the EDR capabilities to kind of get you to where you are today? The story of how CISA began the EDR, the Endpoint Detection and Response tooling side of the program, is really in direct response to, as I, as I said earlier, those major cyber events that we've experienced since 2020 or so, uh, and the need for the government to find some way that we're getting ahead of the threat. We can no longer operate without a certain level of operational visibility. And so providing the tools, the capabilities, the insights to agencies supports not only the agency level, but also what CISA is attempting to do. So that finding ways that we can transform and connect the, the government as a whole, that operational cyber community, is really to enable the rapid response to emerging threats. So no longer counting the current state of a network but finding the kind of always on continuous monitoring side of the network that has been so important from the get-go. And um, I, I think from the very beginning of the program, first and foremost, uh, we have successfully uh, worked to overcome the longstanding asset management challenge at agencies. The CDM program has been spearheading this effort for a number of years. Uh, you know, the, the, the saying that you can't protect what you can't see and in the early days of CDM, agencies really were underestimating 
the, the current uh, technology footprint that they had. Uh, that's changed quite a bit, and EDR plays a role, but also you know the binding operational directive that we issued last year or earlier this fiscal year, uh, binding operational directive 2301, formalized the standard for asset visibility. And that was purposeful to your question about EDR so that we could say there is now a way that we are driving adoption and orchestration of the right capabilities to enable this ongoing operational visibility across all agencies. And that first step you know, is oftentimes the hardest. It is challenging for agencies to wrap their arms around an entire agency enterprise. Uh, but in the past six months, we have ensured that all large agencies, the CFO Act, the Chief Financial Officer Act agencies, were connected to the CDM federal dashboard. Uh, many of them are reporting routinely on a continuous basis that the known exploited vulnerability scans uh, that we automated through the dashboards. And we're beginning to integrate these CDM solutions with the modern capabilities together. So everything from endpoint detection and response, uh, which together, when we talk about the CDM data and the host level visibility, benefits the interagency as a whole because we're able to speak the same language, share the lessons learned as we do this, acknowledge gaps that we might be seeing uh, because we're all doing this together. We are all integrating CDM. We are integrating EDR solutions. And by doing that, we're able to now communicate in a way that's more effective from agency to agency as peers, but also as CISA, as that central convener, that operational lead for cybersecurity. Um, so that, that's kind of the first way is that connectivity of uh, providing that new capability so that agencies are seeing the same things and can connect, which brings us to the establishing through EDR to your question that the dynamic and interactive cyber defense opportunities uh, that we have, it is one thing to um, enhance your shared situational awareness and CISA and the agency able to spot problematic trends that we might seeing based on emergent issues. Um, and we are, as CISA, able to be a more proactive partner through that. Uh, however, EDR comes in because this new dashboard ecosystem, when fully integrated into an agency's uh, deployment of endpoint detection and response solutions, becomes really a fully operational direct access line to CISA that can facilitate no-notice technical assistance should you need it, or continuous uh, cybersecurity assessments through the CDM dashboard and through the resources that CISA has to bear and provide that interactive communications. That didn't exist before we had both the authority and the technology to provide EDR solutions to agencies. And now that it does, we're really seeing how we and CISA can lead those actionable context sharing and targeted notifications in a way that just wasn't even uh, imagined you know, five years ago. I think that with the understanding of the threat environment, our ability to leverage these technologies and EDR as an example to gain that automated level of insight across agency environments, but more importantly, kind of the federal enterprise as a whole has really been a game changer uh, and really helped us think about 
how agencies can and should be focused on unifying their own cyber operations across their agency, building and investing in their foundational cyber activities for things like vulnerability management, and then having that direct uh, communication line back to CISA for threat hunting and incident response and, and anything that would need to be shared to make sure that we can get ahead of the threat. And let's talk about one of the more recent incident response scenarios or actual events with the move it file transfer vulnerability. I understand, you know, CISA was able to get kind of real-time visibility into the agencies that were using move it and whether they had patched or not. So I'd love to know a little bit more about how that worked out. I'd be happy to. I think we have two really good operational use cases that, that are worth discussing as it relates to CDM evolution uh, into this operational realm. And the first is, you know, in the past month, we in CISA have leveraged the CDM capabilities as part of um, the, the broader response effort because they happened uh, around that same time. The broader response of two concerning cyber events. The first, uh, you mentioned move it critical vulnerability, CISA operators analyze near real-time agency dashboard reporting to coordinate targeted notification just to the agencies where we were seeing this move it transfer critical vulnerability to understand the prevalence within minutes across the entire federal ecosystem. CISA was able to see where this critical vulnerability was, who was using this particular type of software, and how we could provide some kind of guidance or notification or support to those agencies and provide that awareness to the larger enterprise as a whole. That was something that's a significant improvement to the way that we operate that, that um, is fairly new. This is part of that evolution to, to operations for the CDM program. And that type of standard procedure to check CDM for operational data to gain insights into prevalence really helps CISA make better informed decisions. I, I think it goes without saying that we, we don't take the decision to issue an emergency directive lightly. And in this case, we didn't for the move it vulnerability, uh, but even convening the entire community, all cyber experts across the community to convene all agencies at once to coordinate specific actions also impacts resources. So regardless, whether we are directing an action or convening or uh, reprioritizing, those things have a cost. And so we really are fortunate now to have that level of visibility for prevalence, to understand and manage risk as we're seeing it. Uh, and the fact that we're able to gain insight and share information and make an enterprise impacting decision so quickly is really a substantial step forward for us. And, and if CISA can do it for the enterprise, you can imagine that agencies at their level have access to an even enriched level of data across their enterprise. So we can all be making these uh, decisions together and being able to really quickly respond to what is happening across the environment. And, and ultimately, I, I think that it is important for CISA to position itself to be more responsive, make better informed reactions. But we also want to leverage this investment, this CDM solution investment to get ahead of the threat and to spot trends and risks that we're seeing before they materialize. And that is really where CISA is going to ensure that we have operationalized 
this investment, this opportunity uh, of the CDM dashboards across agencies to get ahead of the threats as opposed to solely responding to them. And I think another really good example is in recent weeks, uh, there was a response effort to a widespread email security gateway exploit. And this is a very different type of use case. Attackers were modifying their targets and techniques to evade uh, modern protections. Uh, This wasn't like a critical vulnerability that we were responding to. This was something that we saw an exploit and we were seeing bad actors actively uh, working and gaining access based on it. So CISA threat hunters utilize the CDM endpoint detection and response platform. So the CDM hierarchy itself in collaboration with an impacted agency to directly access the agency's environment to search for instances of threat activity. So really working shoulder to shoulder with agency staff to hunt for specific activity or understand what might be happening or to just see if that it was uh, related to the active exploit. It could be nothing. It could be something. And this is why that direct line, that interactive access that CISA now has through CDM is, is so vital. And, and we couldn't have been successful in that first example, the move it example, without all agencies connecting to the dashboard ecosystem and standardizing their asset management and consistently reporting host-level information to the dashboard. We, we wouldn't have been able to take the actions and make the decisions without that. And you know, we couldn't have been successful in the second example without strong partnerships with agencies, that interactive connection with the dashboard hierarchy, the new authorities that we are leveraging to ensure we can provide on-demand, no-notice technical assistance to support agencies and work through what it means to respond quickly to events. And I think this really demonstrates what the government gains from evolving our collective and interactive cyber defense posture. Again, where CDM is going is different from where we came from. And I think it's an evolution of the way that we are operationalizing and you know the threat environment really driving us in the direction of needing to do more as a community, needing to do more as a collective and considering things like enterprise, uh, you know, unified response to these efforts as opposed to individually. Got it. And, you know, just going forward in terms of this vision of spotting trends and getting ahead of threats and just in general, the CDM program, are there any specific initiatives or developments coming up here in the future that you can highlight for us? For sure. I think the, the third that dovetails nicely into the third area that I've been saying is really the the evolution of how the CDM has has shifted into an operational program is integrating all of its capabilities into the broader CISA of cyber services um, to help us identify what needs to happen next and how entities, agencies in this case, need to build capacity. Uh, based on that that awareness, what we're seeing from the tooling and what we're seeing from the dashboards can drive those decisions moving forward. And um, you mentioned uh, where where we may be going next and the things that are top of mind for us. We're, we are navigating really increasingly um, challenging and complex global threat environment uh, and the interconnectivity and third-party risk and the way that we're thinking through integrating our services with zero trust principles and building off of the recent 
advances that we made through asset management. Again, kind of a basic some you know enterprise cybersecurity step one. How do we continue to improve to account for cloud environments and mobile devices uh, and uh, resolving agencies? long-standing challenges with things like identity management. I think going back to the basics is almost as important as identifying the new and emerging trends. And I think finding a way that CDM can stand in the middle of those two things, find a good balance and pull them together is really our unique position in the federal government and our ability to provide capabilities and support to do that uh, in an effective way. And as we're working to optimize the operational use of CDM. We're also thinking about how we can integrate with you know, our CISA protective DNS uh, resolver service, our secure cloud business applications baselines. You may have seen the SCUBA baselines on uh, email protection and security. Um, these are all emerging initiatives that we're thinking about, not as you know, individual programs, but as a collective, how can CISA take meaningful steps forward to unify our technical services uh, with our practitioner-centric engagements in mind? How can we ensure that we're heading in the same direction, we're communicating the right things, we're prioritizing effectively, uh, and always thinking ahead of the threat, being able to respond before we're um, solely in kind of an incident response mode? And for me, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the next uh, several years and the trends that we're seeing Currently, when not all uh, you know, malicious activity is based on vulnerabilities. And we know that we have seen uh, malicious actors using tools really as designed, but doing it in, in a malicious way, finding a way to leverage uh, you know, software and technology for the purposes that they're designed for, but turning that into something that meets their malicious objectives uh, is something that you can't get in a vulnerability scanner. This is something that we in the program are exploring ways that we can you know, monitor TTPs and, and support agencies in hunting their environments and looking for patterns in logs. That has been a, a top of mind concern for the government, log management and the way that we are able to really optimize and leverage it so that we're not solely closing resource gaps in known exploited vulnerabilities and vulnerability management as a whole, but thinking about the best way that we can um, you know, monitor environments and understand what we're seeing, uh, which in some ways are not those you know, top of mind critical vulnerabilities, but they're process-based information. They're you know, behavior-focused analysis uh, so that we can see uh, ways that SOCs, Security Operations Center, analysts can enhance their log management, consider ways to use new tools for host-level visibility, and have CISA as a backstop uh, for incident response or threat hunting should they need it at some point in the future. Got it. That That's a great overview. And on the logging, uh, really quick, I know that's been such a big focus for agencies does you know CDM provide any sort of logging capabilities right now, and are you envisioning that expanding in the future in terms of what the program provides to agencies? You're absolutely correct that logging is top of mind for agencies, both that the, the way that they can you know manage their logs in a more efficient way, or optimize what they currently have, or retain them for a longer period of time. That has been something that was top of mind for the administration through 
you know, the cyber executive order and, and, um, and policies this year as well. Um, it, it's a challenge area. It, it's a resource gap that many agencies are experiencing. It's something that CISA through our endpoint detection response activities are looking at. What does operational visibility mean to us at CISA? What should it mean for agencies and how can we collectively address that challenge together, uh, whether it be through log management or enhancements that we can make, capabilities that we might offer. We're exploring that actively right now. We have uh, you know, pilots underway to think about the best ways that we can gain more operational visibility, leverage it uh, to support agency missions as well as the CISA overarching missions. Uh, and that's, that is you know, where we're at right now, finding ways that we're staying ahead of the threat in this dynamic threat environment. And so um, more to come from the CDM front about what, what is next on the list of new capabilities, but that is certainly top of mind as we're exploring the best ways that we can add value. Michael Duffy, CIS's Associate Director for Capacity Building, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. There's more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety and check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a review of federal efforts to improve citizen experience and reduce administrative burden. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. No American would stand on a soapbox and shout out how easy it is to deal with the federal government. A small office deep within the White House apparatus has been coaxing agencies to reduce what's officially known as administrative burden on citizens. Things like difficult forms, procedures for getting on airplanes, obtaining a loan. The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, known as OIRA, has a progress report on a year-old effort. OIRA's Associate Administrator, Sam Berger, joins us now. Mr. Berger, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. And let's talk about this initiative. It's about a year old, but it was a formal way for OIRA, and I guess really the White House, you might say, to get agencies to think in these terms. Fair to say? Yeah. I mean, so coming in, you know, President Biden had a, a couple things that he was focused on, a range of things, but two big parts were, one, improving the way that government delivers services to the American people, which you might call customer service, right? customer experience. Also, focusing on equity, making sure that when you, you look at groups that have been shut out of the process for too long, that we're bringing them in, that we're thinking about their needs, and they're trying to be responsive to them in the way that we're responsive to everyone else. And and this, uh, this effort sort of gets right at it. It's one of these things where uh, the career folks here at OIRA looked at see these priorities and said, well, we have an authority that fits just right, namely the Paperwork Reduction Act. So the Paperwork Reduction Act is this is this law that basically tells us at OIRA to make sure that when you're filling out a government form that's designed properly, meaning that it's not asking for more information than it needs to, that it's as clear as possible, et cetera. Traditionally, people have thought of that as sort of applying to you know the forms that businesses might fill out when they're doing a range of things, but should equally apply to people when they're trying to get access to a government service, access uh, to a benefit that they're eligible for. And and the point of this effort is to say, we need to be doing a better job here. We need to be focused on these issues. We need to be thinking about those burdens, and then we need to be looking for ways to reduce them. So that's sort of the impetus for for where this all came from. And is there an objective way to measure administrative burden? Some forms, you know, tax forms, for example, just need a lot of information. And because of the regulatory or rules or legal apparatus behind them just can't be simplified too much. Yeah, it's a great point. So obviously, we can measure the time it takes. And one of the things that they talk about in the academic literature that that we talk about is this time tax. 
And, you know, part of the problem is figuring out how much burden there is. And there's a couple of reasons that that can be a challenge. One is we shouldn't just look at how much time it takes you to fill out the form. We need to be thinking about how much time it takes you to collect the relevant documentation, to identify any of the eligibility requirements for the form. And in some cases, to take the various steps that are required, maybe you need to have an in-person meeting. Well, if you're working across town and you have kids and someone's got to get childcare. There's a cost there. There's a time to, to, to do that. All of these things should be added up. And so one of the things we told agencies to do was a better job of, of covering the full panoply of costs that folks face. The reason being is if you don't understand how challenging it is, how long it takes, it's harder to get people motivated to fix it. If you think a form takes people an hour to fill out, well, maybe you're not going to pay your attention, pay attention. There. If you realize it takes them eight hours, you know, then it's really important. The second thing I'll say about this is, and you know, we've probably all experienced, you go to talk to somebody uh, you know, who's working at, say, the DMV, and you say, you know, I need to fill out, a, you know, I need to do X, Y, and Z, and they're great, fill out form, you know, 27C, then you get it stamped over here, then you come back and fill out a 14F, and, do, and you know, they're going through, and you're just desperately trying to write it all down, because what for them is, you know, sort of like what they do every day. They know all these forms, of course, they're very conversant in it. For us, it's a totally new experience. It can be confusing, challenging, frustrating. And so having agencies do a better job, and then how do they do that? One big way is hearing from people, right? Actually listening to the folks that are trying to go through these forms, finding out the sorts of challenges they're facing, also finding out questions that might make perfect sense to folks in the agency. But when you're looking at it fresh, you just don't know what to do. I think we've all probably hit a question on a form where you're like, that doesn't, that's not me, but I don't even know what to say. And I don't want to say something wrong. And then I can't get this benefit or I get myself having to get on a phone. It's all this complicated stuff. So having those conversations, hearing from folks is a really critical aspect of trying to make those changes. So step one, doing a better job of actually capturing it. Um, And I, I should also mention, in addition to the sorts of burdens that I'm talking about, things that you can quantify. We're speaking with Sam Berger. He's Associate Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is part of the Office of Management and Budget. Yeah, interesting. Elaborate, if you would, on some of those non-quantifiable factors. And there's also harder things like the psychological burdens. It's just frustrating to ha- put in your information for the fifth time on another form when you just did it and mailed it you know, away to the agency, you put your stuff away and they come back and say, no, we need it again. And so capturing that cost as well, if you can't put a number on it, that's real. I think we've all felt it. So trying to get agencies to do a better job of of covering the full panoply of it and then doing a better job of reducing them, right? So first you identify the problem, then you figure out how to make it better. So that, that's sort of the underlying goal here. And one way to find out too would maybe to ask your line employees, say your social security, ask the people in the offices or at the front desk, so to speak, if you will, even virtual. They know often better than agency management sometimes, it's fair to say. Oh, exactly. And I think part of the thing is making clear to folks that this sort of these sort of steps are valued, meaning that if you take time to figure out how to reduce burden, right, which isn't necessarily easy, right, you got to pull a whole bunch of people together, you have to understand all the various factors, why do we ask for this information, and maybe in our St. Louis regional office, we don't need it. But actually, over here, it's critically important. So what can we do? That takes a lot of time and effort. So making clear that that's valuable. And I think there's a couple different ways to do it. One is hearing from folks, right? When you look someone in the face and they tell you, this is a real problem. You know, there's a SSA disability um, listening session about disability. And someone said, filling out this form is worse than getting cancer twice. Anyone who hears that says, well, this is a form we need to fix, right? And then you're motivated. Second thing, though, is making sure that when you do that, you know, your boss is going to come by and say, great job. Your colleagues are going to say, I see you. I hear you. I appreciate what you're doing. And so things like this report that we just put out, that lift that work up, that highlight those success stories. Because a lot of times, you know, sure. and we're always focused on where people can do better, which is important. 
But it's also important to recognize where people have done well to encourage folks to keep up that work. And, and that's also, quite frankly, why things like I'm so excited about this opportunity to talk to you, because lifting up these stories, talking about folks that have done a great job, you know, whether it be at Social Security or, or USDA or other places to make people's lives easier is an encouragement to everyone to take those same sorts of steps. So it really is building this this culture um, of burden reduction, a virtuous cycle where people are reducing burden and getting support to even go back and do more. But you're exactly right. You got to talk to the people on the ground, the people that are helping fill out the forms, the people that are filling out the forms, people are dealing with it because they're the ones who are going to really understand the pain points and, and have ideas about the best ways to fix it. And just talk us through a couple of the highlights that you have in the report where agencies have made progress. One that caught my eye was the first one, DHS efforts to reduce burden on individuals using mobile driver's licenses as IDs when they go to the airport. Yeah. So this is a great example. And I think, you know, even taking a step back, something very interesting that DHS did was setting a goal across the whole agency. So DHS interacts with about as many people as any federal agency. When you think about everything from TSA, uh, immigration services, everything, you know, there's tons of contact points there. And what they said is, well, look, let's put a target of 20 million hours reduction across all of DHS. So you set a goal and then you tell everyone, figure out how to do it. Right. And that's a great model. It makes it clear that from the very top, DHS is focused on this and that everyone across the agency is responsible for being a part of it. And one of the things that led to was almost a, a preemptive burden reduction effort, seeing the, you know, the sort of upcoming rise in um, mobile driver's licenses and identifying that without any sort of changes that could run afoul of existing requirements that DHS has, DHS has around real ID. So starting to take the, the step to work through what exactly it looks like to fix those problems, hearing from folks about the issues that might come up, being proactive there. Another example I might give is farm loans. Um, you know, these are critical loans that USDA gives to farmers. They can be critical lifelines, keeping their businesses operating, making things work. But they're really complicated. So they had basically 10 different forms with 29 pages of paperwork. Holy cow. Yeah, it took more than five hours to complete. That's, in, that's incredibly challenging. But through a lot of concentrated work, dedicated time and effort by civil servants across the country, they will get that those 10 forms down to a single 13-page document and nearly have the burden reduction. And then they didn't just stop there. They launched a new online assistance tool. So when folks are, you know, trying to access it, because I think we all know, you know, it, it's rare that we're filling out a burden uh, form, you know, nine to five. We've got to fill it out on our own time. And, and Lord knows for farmers, they got even more time that they're working, right? <laughs> so trying to find a bit where they can actually go in and talk to someone during their business hours, that can be tough. Yeah, come so, join me on the combine here and let's talk about it. <laughs> exactly. So helping them use this new this tool so that when they access it, whatever time it might be in very early in the morning or late at night, they can help them work through the process and make it easier there, kind of give them 24-hour service and, and making sure they can submit things paperless online. So it's these sorts of steps, I think, that, that can have a real impact. Just one other one, you know, I mentioned that SSA form. Obviously, it would be surprising if I mentioned that form and I said, and then no one did anything, right? <laughs> After folks had kind of called it out being so difficult. SSA has been doing a, a tremendous amount of work around reducing the burden in their you know, accessing disability program. So it started with hearing from folks, all these listening sessions, understanding where the pain points are. But then they launched ability to, to allow online submission of these uh, redetermination forms. Another thing, though, is getting rid of open-ended questions. So some of the questions there um, 
folks sound you know just very confusing sort of like you know tell us about a typical day or something of that nature it's hard and that creates all this stress i don't want to get this wrong so trying to get more concrete make it clearer so that folks understand what it is that they have to do the information that they have to provide and then another big part of this is is pre-filling forms right so a lot of times we in the government have the information somewhere and we just need to take a little time to figure out where it is so we can pre-populate it for you because if we know what your income is, we don't need you to tell us for the 80th time. You probably don't want to tell us for the 80th time. We can save each other a lot of effort, both sides, by filling out ourselves. And also, that makes it that reduces error, right? I'm, we've all put in an eight-digit number, submitted it, or maybe a, you know whatever it is, and then realized we like transpose two things, and oh, I gotta go back and fix it. If that stuff's being pre-populated, you know, with that information, it's just going to reduce that kind of error. It's going to help us on the government side, too. So this is one of these things where we can improve program integrity, we can improve the customer experience, and we can improve take-up rate in these programs for people to get the benefits and access the services that they need. We're speaking with Sam Berger. He's Associate Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is part of the Office of Management and Budget, and on the reginfo.gov site. There is a list of other types of information collection burdens that the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs is evaluating. And that is a long, long, long list. How are you going to get through all of this? Well, well, look, we're not going to fix every problem in a day. But every day we need to make progress on fixing at least one problem, if not more, right? And that's what we're trying to encourage agencies to do. I talked about building up this virtuous cycle, making sure that from the top to the bottom of an agency, folks know a couple things. One this work is going to be recognized and appreciated, but also this work is important, right? It might not feel so exciting to be like figuring out how to get five questions down into one. But when you understand the impact that that has on people's lives, when you have a chance to hear from people and say, thank you so much for making this form better. Now I can get this benefit that I need to put food on the table to keep my farm going, whatever it might be. So trying to recognize, you know, that we're humans on all sides. And so we need to create these this sort of environment that make sure that people understand what they need to be doing, that they're getting that positive reinforcement for doing it, and then that we're going ahead and doing it. And so, you know, we're going to be on a uh, annual basis putting out a report that highlights this sort of work and that lets the public also see what's going on and, quite frankly, tell us where we can be doing better. A big part of this is hearing from the American people, understanding where there are issues and where there can be improvements. And so I would just encourage folks, when you see these opportunities for public participation, Participate, because they really do make a difference. People say that this is a real problem. There's someone out who's going to be looking at that and trying to figure out how to fix it. And so, you know, that kind of feedback, that kind of information that we can get from the American people is just critical to make sure that we're focusing on the highest value things, doing everything we can to improve the service that we're providing people. And that's why folks get into public service, right, to do that job. And sometimes it can just be helpful for them to understand where they should most be putting their attention and talents in order to make that kind of difference. These data collection items that you are evaluating are organized by department and by large agency. They know you're looking at this, correct? Oh, yeah. Agencies are well aware. I mean, part of what we're doing is also trying to make sure the agencies are talking to each other, finding out what folks. So there's a couple different parts of this. One is making sure agencies are talking to each other so they're hearing what other folks have done that have proven successful, but also making sure that agencies are talking to themselves, right? Getting everyone in the same room so that they know not just what are the administrative requirements, but what are the legal requirements, right? Where is there flexibility for agencies to make changes? Where are there things that made sense 15 years ago and everyone's sort of just doing it and someone raised a hand and say, well, why are we doing this anymore? Does this make sense? 
getting people in those rooms, having those conversations is really how you move the ball forward. How are we taking advantage, obviously, of advances when it comes to utilization of, of online and other new technologies to make sure that we're trying to make it as as easy as possible for folks. So having those conversations, having that feedback, and like I said, this is something that folks are well aware. You know, we put out uh, some guidance on that, followed up with some clear kind of metrics in terms of what we're seeing folks doing. And, you know, we're going to keep following up on an annual basis. This is a thing that we're going to be doing, but it's, it's not just a once a year thing. It's once a year that we're taking stock of all the work we've done over that year. And that's critical. And I think folks recognize that. Quite frankly, folks are excited because they realize there's a real difference to be made you know, in getting those 10 forms down to one and figuring out how to pre-populate, you know, these sort of data fields and that that can make a concrete difference in people's lives. And you found that the agency heads and also the high-level career staff are interested in cooperating on this effort. They're interested and they're excited. And I think this is one of those things where it's a proof point of like, there's a lot of good that you can be doing in the world in a given day. Here's, this is real. This is good. And this is worth your time. And I think, you know, the DHS is a great example right from the top saying across this agency, we're reducing it by 20 million hours. They hit that target. And so having other agencies, you know, set targets, set audacious goals and encourage that is exactly what we're looking to do. We see a lot of excitement and interest. And I think hopefully building off the back of this report, building off of folks like you paying attention to this and lifting it up, we'll see even more uh, effort, enthusiasm, excitement about making this these kinds of changes and, and improving people's experience. Sam Berger is Associate Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, part of the Office of Management and Budget. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, higher interest rates have dampened mergers and acquisitions in the defense market. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The defense industrial base is always a concern for the Pentagon. It worries about both capacity and whether it has a competitive market. That's why planners keep an eye on mergers and acquisitions. M&A activity is highly sensitive to interest rates. And for some insight on what to expect now that the Federal Reserve rate is around 5% and may be on the rise, we turn to Venable Law Firm partner Joseph Schmelter. Mr. Schmelter, good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here speaking with you. And first of all, just for those that may not understand all of their subordinated debentures and other managerial finance questions, the interest rate from the Federal Reserve, how does that affect the market in general? What is the effect of higher interest rates? Does it tend to dampen M&A? It does a little bit, particularly for a segment of the buyer market, which is comprised by private equity firms. So, Unlike your big strategic buyers, publicly traded integrators that everyone has heard of, the other half of the buyer market are private equity firms and sort of hybrids that are sponsored by private equity. And they finance their deals typically on a one-off basis. So if there's an acquisition that a private equity-sponsored buyer is going to do, they're going to have to go out and get financing for that deal. And when interest rates are increasing or higher than they normally are, and when credit generally is tightening, 
And by that, I mean covenants are becoming more difficult. Underwriting is taking longer. That means it's a heavier lift for a private equity buyer. Deals take longer to get done. Offers from private equity may become somewhat less competitive when judged against offers being made by your strategic, publicly traded government contractors. So higher interest rates does put a damper. That is certainly a, a headwind for M&A activity, for sure. And just, again, as background, would it be fair to characterize mergers and acquisitions in three basic buckets, publicly traded, taking over, or merging with publicly traded? They finance it themselves through stock and cash. Then the second tier would be publicly traded or big, buying little, in which case they also finance it with stock or cash, and then middle size and small buying other middle size and small, and that's where the venture capital comes in, or the equity capital. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to, to allocate the universe of these deals. Although on the private equity side, you know, some of those funds can be quite large. And I would distinguish between you know, venture capital, where private money is perhaps making a minority investment in a technology company or a startup or something like that versus private equity generally where they're outright making acquisitions and buying control of the target companies that they're going after. And some of those PE funds, the Carlisles and the Bain Capitals of the world are quite large. So they rival, you know, the Lockheeds and the Northrop Grumman's uh, and the Lidoses of the world in terms of their buying power. That's a good breakdown. All right. And how would you characterize activity this year, especially in that equity capital type of market that we've been talking about? Is it up, down, level? And we had a watershed year recently, correct? We certainly did. 2021 was the high watermark for M&A activity in the aerospace, defense, and government services market, what people would typically referred to as government contracting M&A. 2022 was not far behind. There was a little bit of a slowing down last year, especially in the second half of the year, as interest rates started to increase quickly. But nevertheless, I believe 2022 in this aerospace defense and government services market was the second highest year in terms of transactions and, and deal volume. So 2023 is off from those two very robust years. Probably we will end up, if I had to guess, somewhere around you know, pre-pandemic levels for M&A activity in that government space. We're speaking with attorney Joseph Schmelter. He's a partner at Venable. And to what extent are these driven by purely financial considerations? This company has a nice set of contracts or it has a good potential for contracts and we like the cash flow, whatever the case might be, and that's a good target versus a hot technology. For example, the emergence of artificial intelligence. Does that drive activity or is it simply a financial calculus? No, certainly there are areas that over time become hot markets, sort of sexy acquisition targets, if you will. Over time, I can think of healthcare, IT, intelligence, contractors, cyber. And currently, I think one of the biggest pushes in the federal government would be IT modernization or, or digital transformation. So if you are a contractor who's successfully winning contracts, especially if you're a prime contractor, you know, in direct privity with your government contractor, and you're in an area like IT modernization, digital transformation, 
where the federal budget is increasing, you're going to demand higher valuations, higher multiples, and you certainly will be a hot commodity for potential buyers. But on the other hand, when you take over a company like that, you're just buying people. You're not buying any real capital. What about companies that maybe make a certain connector that the military has to have by the thousands every year? It's prosaic. It's Bakelite or, you know, molded plastic and metal and some people standing there stamping out these things. But sometimes the margins are amazing on those products. What about that type of company that someone might just like because the cash flow is good and they're going to need those connectors for the next 50 years? Absolutely. We spoke earlier about how private equity has become a real competitor with your larger strategic buyers. You know, private equity has figured out that sleepy government contractors with steady margins and really solid customers, there isn't a better customer in the world than the U.S. federal government. And so even though you may not get the sexy margins that you would in a pure technology startup, nevertheless, as you say, over time, you've got a solid customer, you're in a niche production area, and you're going to command some of those higher multiples as well. I mean, I think right now we talked about IT modernization, but another driver is the reset, which is happening and will happen for defense contractors in light of the war in Ukraine. I think NATO in Lithuania discussed increasing NATO member defense budgets, and that's only going to spur greater activity and greater valuations of your very traditional defense manufacturing firms. So absolutely, it's not limited to who's doing cyber work or who's doing AI and machine learning work, but it's also very traditional manufacturers without whom the defense department and defense departments around the world cannot you know, reach the goals that they've set out to achieve. Yeah, you can almost rewrite that old movie line. I have just one word for you, young man, 155-millimeter howitzer shells. <laughs> or plastics or something like that. Yeah, right. absolutely. And in your experience, at what point, if ever, does anyone, say, from the Pentagon say, golly, I really wish that company would not get bought? I mean, sometimes they can have a say in the really big mergers and acquisitions, but at what point do they ever or do they ever express, golly, we like the competition this one is providing with that one? Yeah, I think there's two things going on, two levers that the federal government can push when they're really concerned about a particular transaction. You mentioned one, and that's if there's just an outright anti-competitive result. There's the federal Hart-Scott-Rodino statute, which when you get to a certain deal size needs to be vetted in order to determine whether two companies coming together will have unnecessarily anti-competitive effects. But the other has to do with organizational conflicts of interest. This is something that you see in the GovCon M&A world that you may not see in the private sector. And that simply has to do with whether or not because of an acquisition or a merger, you've got two different functions happening within the same contractor, which the federal government is loath to allow to go forward. So by that, I mean, you may have contractor A, the target who is being acquired, and they're in the business of helping their federal government customers and agencies 
put together their procurements, set out their requirements. So that's the job they're doing for their customers. And then they're being acquired by somebody who's in the business of pursuing the very contracts that are going to be let in the short term. So when you've got an organizational conflict of interest sure. like that, an OCI, they call it, that's a second area where the federal government is quite concerned and will really do their due diligence and may require one or the other of the two companies coming together to shed one of those businesses to get rid of those OCIs. Sure. And just a final question, what's the outlook for 23 remainder and calendar 24, do you think? I mean, I think right now we've sort of got competing headwinds and tailwinds, which are fighting to a stalemate. We've got sort of the headwinds being just the federal government's reset that I mentioned in Ukraine for defense contractors. You've got a positive political picture in the sense that we narrowly avoided a debt ceiling crisis only a few months ago. So the risk of default is off the table, and it doesn't look like we'll have a redux of sequestration and the Budget Control Act that we had under the Obama administration. So those are all the tailwinds, but the headwinds are higher rates. You mentioned that at the outset of our conversation, general credit tightening, inflation, And so I think those things are sort of fighting themselves to a stalemate right now. I think we'll see relatively steady deal flow through the rest of the year and into next year. We'll have an election toward the end of next year. So oftentimes, buyers will sit on the sidelines and try to read the tea leaves and see whether we're going to have a Democratic or a Republican administration in the White House before they pull the trigger on some of their M&A goals. So I think with all of that, Uh, sort of neutralizing headwinds and tailwinds and a little bit of political uncertainty in an election year. I think you're in for sort of steady M&A activity, you know, below the high watermarks we we hit in 21 and 22. Attorney Joseph Schmelter is a partner at Venable. Thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 